Hello everyone, and welcome back to Election Day. This is my Season 5 recap and follow-up episode, where I will discuss once again and then update upon the topics that I've talked about for the past seven episodes with the additional knowledge in politics that comes with the passage of time. I think that's especially important because recently the world has just been crazy and so much has been happening every week. So I'm super excited to do this. Let's get right into it. My first episode this season was the Biden administration, where I talked about his picks for cabinet secretaries and what that might say about his policy agenda and priorities. Since the release of this episode, Biden has filled out the rest of his cabinet. And of these new picks, I'm going to quickly comment on Defense Secretary General Lloyd Austin and Attorney General Merrick Garland. Along with the Secretary of State and the Secretary of the Treasury, those two are part of what's known as the Big Four, the four most important cabinet secretaries. So General Lloyd Austin served alongside Joe Biden in the Obama administration as a general, and he oversaw the Central Command, so Iraq, Afghanistan, that region. And he has stirred up some controversy over his confirmation, with a lot of Democrats even saying that they won't vote to confirm him because he's only been out of the military for four years, and the requirement is at least seven years to ensure civilian control of the military. As for Attorney General Merrick Garland, he is a federal judge on the D.C. Circuit, and obviously he's most known for being denied a seat on the Supreme Court by Mitch McConnell. So for a lot of people on the left, there is some satisfaction and a sense of karma in that. The main thing I might notice from that pick is that he's a judge, and that is a stark contrast to Trump's attorney generals who were more perhaps politically minded and less judicially and legally sound. Compared to that, Merrick Garland is certainly very impartial, law-based judicial. As a general statement about all of his picks so far, Joe Biden seems to mostly be picking people that he already knows and already trusts. It's pretty much a circle of close trusted advisors and bureaucrats, and that appears to be the biggest consideration above any strategic factor. He's not really assembling a team of rivals, that's for sure. One thing to keep in mind as we move forward in a Biden administration is that while he may be moderate, he might not be that much of a visionary, that doesn't mean he won't make big systemic change. A New York Times op-ed that I read made the analogy between Joe Biden and Lyndon B. Johnson. Lyndon B. Johnson was JFK's vice president before becoming president, just like Biden was to Obama. And like Obama, JFK was the charismatic face of the administration, but then it was actually his less awe-inspiring successor who was able to get real policy change done through his legislative nuts-and-bolts ability, and that could very well be the case with Joe Biden. But anyway, I'll talk more about Joe Biden's cabinet 
and policy in the next season, so look out for that. The second episode this season was The Third Wave. That was my update on the state of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the truth is, we're still in that third wave. We're pretty much still in the largest imaginable spike of anywhere in the world, of any point during this pandemic, since it first arrived. If you look at any metric, death, hospitalizations, cases per day, the situation is just as grim as when I made this episode. And we need to keep remembering that whenever we look at these truly saddening and horrifying numbers, there are people behind those numbers. I often find myself asking, how can such a large proportion of the American population feel so comfortable and confident with such immense danger and irresponsibility? And this is where I truly still resent Trump's world of lies because his words in the COVID-19 pandemic really do quite literally kill. Because he didn't want to wear a mask, because he didn't know what to do, now so many other people have to not know what to do. Obviously, there are a lot of other political concerns right now, but to me, COVID is still the biggest. We're in a bad situation, and this has to change. This has to improve. What we're doing right now isn't working. And so many of the most important steps to take are so simple and everyday. Wear a mask. Socially distance. Wash your hands. Just basic caution. I guess just at this point, we just have to do it. And we also need to get other people to do it. It's that simple. It's not rocket science. Wear a mask, as Dr. Fauci says. And it continues to be so sad how this is politicized. The third episode this season was Trumpism, Us versus Them. This was my favorite one because I think it really dissected and broke down what makes the Trump presidency the Trump presidency? His tribalistic, polarizing, divisive, and then authoritarian circle. It starts with his fabrications of reality, his outright lying, that undermines the notion of facts, of objective reality. And he creates this world of his own where his supporters can believe whatever they want to believe and whatever he tells them. This is the sort of thing that Kellyanne Conway refers to as alternative facts, or this is what Giuliani is referring to when he says, truth isn't truth. So by constantly lying, Trump creates his own alternative reality. And then what he's able to do off of that is generate anger and fear and hatred and rage from his supporters. When he creates this other fabricated reality, he can do so in a way that provokes an emotional response. The politics of fear and anger, as I referred to in the episode. 
And then once he's able to generate that anger and response, then he can create a cult of personality, a sort of quasi-religious presence that no other American president or politician has or have had. He's able to portray himself as the sole hero and defender for his people. And the only reason that I took such a long time to thoroughly explain the whole thing again is because I think it's a very important central concept, and it's a theme that we saw for the past two weeks amidst the riots. Trump's baseless claims of election fraud led to an outrage among his base that then spearheaded this authoritarian effort to overturn democracy and declare Trump the ruler. So I'll come back to this towards the end of the episode when I talk about the riots. My fourth episode this season was about hope in 2021. Now, obviously in hindsight, given the start that this year's gotten off to, this looks horrible. My attempt to bring some optimism into the discussion. But I still think there are some valid points. Regarding COVID, as I've said, clearly the situation hasn't necessarily improved very much, and even for the vaccine, the distribution rollout has been pretty rocky. But still, some people at least are able to get the vaccine, and hopefully people will be able to get it at some point in the near future. At least it's not a total disaster, right? And by the way, as just a headline catch-up if you missed this story because it flew under the radar a little bit, apparently the Biden administration will focus on increasing availability of the vaccine, so they'll release basically all the current inventory instead of as Trump has done, holding some back, holding about half back, to make sure that there's certainly enough for second doses. So, I don't know how I feel. Obviously, it's a higher risk, higher reward. But just to make sure you're aware of that. Even for the stimulus and economic relief bill, $600 checks were passed through Mitch McConnell's Senate. And for those who think that wasn't enough, that the Senate should definitely go a step further, pass even $2,000 checks. Well, Joe Biden has just proposed a even more sweeping economic relief bill for when he enters office. So it looks like there will be more legislation. I also talked about how at the time, the Electoral College had just voted for Biden without any faithless electors, and how that was a sign of democratic institutions holding up to pressure. Well, obviously since then, our institutions have been pushed even further than at the point of the episode. Last week, democracy has been pushed further to the brink, been placed under further duress than any of us could have ever imagined. And as I'll talk about later, it is very disappointing how Trump and so many Republicans aided that effort 
But at the same time, as I did in the original episode, I also want to applaud political courage. People who knew that it wasn't in their interest to stand up for democracy, but who did it anyway because they knew it was right. I'm talking about people like Representative Chip Roy from Texas, who himself said that voting against the objection to the Electoral College certification could be his political death warrant. But he did it anyway because he knew it was the right thing to make sure democracy doesn't fall apart. I also want to give a shout out to Vice President Mike Pence, who for the past four years I have really disliked, but on January 6th, he was one of the few people in that room who played it perfectly. He just played by the rules and didn't find some way to cause a total insurrection and overturning of democracy as maybe Trump would have wanted. And I'm talking about people like Representative Liz Cheney, who comes from a deep red Trump district, but yet just this week voted to impeach him. And so I think whenever we see someone acting against their own interests for the better of the country, I think we should applaud that. So I just spend a little time for that. And the final thing from this episode was how, even despite this divisive time where it seems unity is more impossible than ever, Biden continues to push that narrative. Now, of course, that could be unrealistic for a modern America, a post-Trump America, but I think there is something to his encouraging naivete. Even if he's wrong, his outlook on America is hopeful and encouraging to all of us, or it should be, that America can unite and do better. So that's just one thing that I wanted to point out, is his encouraging naivete. And that's actually one of the alternative titles I considered for this episode. Now, my fifth episode this season was the Christmas episode. I used this recurring theme of the quote-unquote war on Christmas to discuss religion in politics and why this religious right evangelical phenomenon makes no sense to me. And just to quickly sum up, unfortunately, in the modern political era, Christianity has just become an extension of identity politics. It's just another word you could tack on to who you are. There's a reason that in America, evangelical is pretty much a synonym for Southern, white, Anglo-Saxon social conservatives. The religious right or the Christian right phenomenon has pretty much nothing to do with the religion itself. It should really just be called the right, really. And religion is just another way to justify that. It's another factor into identity politics. It's just, the trouble is, it just doesn't work. If Jesus was on earth today, the so-called religious right would be just like the Pharisees. They would be his biggest critics. They would be calling him a radical socialist. 
Jesus was about even putting aside the rules and regulations of the world and instead leading with love, rejecting the politics of fear and anger, aka Trumpism, the hateful ideology that so many of these Christians identify with. I saw a quote somewhere that said, you know, I wish Democrats cared more about life in the womb, but then I wish Republicans cared more about life outside the womb. So my main point in this episode was simply to point out that for the people who use Christianity to justify their conservative viewpoint, in this era where conservatism for these evangelical Christians oftentimes means Trumpism, the two things are not compatible. If you're interested in this and haven't listened to the episode yet, please go listen to it. I think it's a really good one. And it actually ties very much into the episode after that, which was about the Georgia Senate runoffs. Because in the state of Georgia, churches did have a big impact on voter turnout. They were a major vector. Because on the one hand, you had evangelical, aka white, voters who made up a big chunk of Donald Trump support. But then on the other hand, you had a lot of black churches who were spearheading an effort on behalf of Democrats, especially considering that now Senator-elect Raphael Warnock was a pastor. In general, actually, that's a big reason why Democrats Ossoff and Warnock were able to win, thus giving Democrats a majority in the Senate. It was turnout among black voters. They had a great turnout the vote mobilization effort, and again, credit where it's due to Stacey Abrams. Thanks to increased turnout in the Atlanta area, Democrats were able to pull off a win twice. One of my big questions that I asked in the original episode was, will Democrats be able to replicate the success of Joe Biden? Will the Senate candidates be able to match Biden's support? And the answer to that question was yes. In fact, they even did better. They outperformed Joe Biden, which is remarkable. Especially considering the concerted effort by the Republican Party to paint these two as radical. Democrats were able to let their base know how important this election was. So that was one half of their success story, and the other half was the total failure of the Republican Party. They had two not necessarily likable, popular candidates, especially Kelly Leffler, who was just totally hated and despised. That's why she actually lagged behind her fellow Republican, Purdue. And Donald Trump certainly did not help. Considering that local GOP members did not assist his effort, he was in burn-it-down mode. He was on a revenge tour, and he had no interest in securing the success of the Georgia Republican Party. It was almost as if he wanted to punish them, and he did, in a way, by pushing these election fraud claims so far that so many of his staunch supporters thought, why should we vote if it's going to be a rigged election anyway? While Democrats were able to 
keep their turnout up and overperform Biden, the Georgia GOP looks so weak without Donald Trump leading them. And without him, they weren't able to excite the base. So yeah, the Senate candidates basically suffered death by Trump. Everything he touches just turns to failure. He completely cracked the party in half and then gave the race to Democrats. I remember a quote, I think from 2015-2016, from Lindsey Graham, who said, if we nominate Trump, we will get crushed and we will deserve it. Well, that's what happened. In four years, Trump lost everything. So, that being said, what does this mean Joe Biden can do? Well, as I said in the original episode, this means that he won't have to deal with as much of the relentless obstructionism of Mitch McConnell, making sure Biden can get nothing done and trying to get him to be punished in the next election cycle. Having a majority is very powerful, for sure. It means Democrats will be able to control committee assignments, win votes that only need 50 rather than 60. Judging by precedent, when Obama had 50 votes, he was able to do stuff. When Trump had 50 votes, he was able to do stuff. So, of course, Biden will have less trouble. That being said, though, the filibuster does still exist. For most important votes, you still do need 60. And that means Biden will have to convince 10 Republicans. A majority is a lot, but it isn't everything. And we know Mitch McConnell is really good at using the system and the rules to his advantage. And a majority might even have an unintended consequence for Joe Biden. And that's the fact that Joe Biden, being a moderate Democrat, doesn't necessarily want to attempt the most ambitious legislation that other parts of his party might want. Having a Republican Senate is a great excuse for him to say, hey, we can't do that, that's too far to the left, the Republicans won't support it. And it's a great way for him to go in and negotiate. That's something that he's good at and he likes. Now that Democrats have the Senate majority, Biden might be prone to being pushed into things that he himself doesn't necessarily want to do. A lot of people think that Obama was over-ambitious because he had control of the government, and people might end up thinking that way about Biden too. My most recent episode was Insurrection, A Selfish Man's Injured Pride, and that was responding to the violence in the Capitol and how that was largely due to President Trump. The truth is, this incident didn't pop up out of nowhere. This was the natural culmination of a weeks-long effort by President Trump to achieve this point where his supporters are riled up to the point where they would do anything for him. Why else would Trump and his allies use such battle-oriented, conflict-oriented language when describing election fraud? It's gearing up to a point where there will be literal battle. It's just so horrifying, though, that 
the president of the United States, not some foreign enemy, but the president himself would try to undermine democracy. This actually links back to my very, very first episode, season one, episode one, about Trump's psychology, why he acts out the way he does. If you're interested in that, go back and watch my very first episode. But he is acting so childishly, just reacting to his impulses without understanding all the harm he's doing to the country and indeed the world. As Mitt Romney so eloquently put it, we're in this situation because of a selfish man's injured pride. And also, of course, all his yes-men who allowed for that. It's also sad how democracy is becoming partisan as Trump and his allies, which then involves so many members of the Republican Party, are staying loyal to him above the country, really. One phrase that I've just been swirling through my mind recently is radical on democracy. That fiercely defending democracy is now some far-left position. We simply cannot overturn democracy. And we cannot also give a pass on domestic terrorism. That's what these rioters at the Capitol were. This is domestic terrorism. This was an intentional effort to terrorize, invoke terror in our government. Going back to what I was talking about, why is the peaceful transfer of power now controversial? Because Trump wants it to be. Just absorb these statistics for a moment. A majority of House Republicans objected to certifying the Electoral College results. 70% of Republicans believe that there was election fraud. 50% of Republicans believe that Joe Biden should not be inaugurated. Sometimes it really just confuses me. How do so many people, both politicians in Washington and then mostly people in the population, Trump's base, how do people have such a whitewashed view of mobs? How do so many people, even if they're not explicitly for violence, how do so many people on some level sympathize with them? And I do think it comes down to that formula of Trumpism that I talked about earlier. There is a boiled up frustration. There is Trump's cult of personality where people feel like their political and personal identity is attached to him. Once people are in Trump's world, there is certainly a tendency towards conspiracies. And most importantly, I think there is a strong feeling of, I am a victim. Trump is portraying himself as a victim, and so many people who are tied to him then also inherit that feeling of victimization. This is grievance conservatism at its peak, an ideology not necessarily politically driven, but one driven by a sense of victimization. That 
everyone is against you. That's what makes it so easy for conspiracies and rumors to become mainstream, for people to refuse to accept and take it for a given that Trump won. This is why it's so easy for so many Republicans to deflect criticisms of the event, not by necessarily condemning it, but by saying, what about, or but. And interestingly enough, that's often used in the context of left-wing political violence, quote-unquote, including supposedly the Black Lives Matter movement, which is interesting because it's also being used by the left to point out the unequal treatment that the peaceful protesters on the left and the riots on the right suffered. It's really so true, as Trump says, that he could kill someone on Fifth Avenue and people would still support him. I'm just so thankful, you know, that his platforms like Twitter or Facebook have blocked him because this isn't about them blocking free speech. As a very intelligent YouTube comment put it, if someone graffitied hateful comments onto a bathroom wall at KFC, they'd ban the guy. An interesting subplot that we've seen throughout this effort is the split within the Republican Party. Now they have to figure out, you know, where are my interests? Do I go down the Trump path or the non-Trump path? We've had a lot of his Republican cooperators helping him to divide the country. Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Kevin McCarthy, and so many other people who, after their decisions on January the 6th, got a lot of backlash in terms of money and in public opinion. But then you have people who took anti-Trump positions and then are getting backlash from the right. So Trump's putting them in a tough spot because institutionalists in the Republican Party now have to make a decision that they hate having to make. And that's where Trump's gambit of, hey, you have to choose if you're loyal to me or not, might not work because he's torturing his own people. The important thing to recognize is even a lot of these Republican politicians who continue to work with Trump, a lot of them on the inside really hate him. That's what we found out about Mitch McConnell. And I don't think they all like the fact that the GOP isn't the GOP anymore that their party has become pretty much unrecognizable. A lot of people, even people who voted against impeachment today, said that Trump's behavior was unacceptable and that he bears responsibility, right? So it'll be interesting to see going forth how the GOP positions itself post the Trump presidency. And then, of course, I haven't even gotten to the big headline because there's so much to talk about. Trump's second impeachment today, the only president ever to be impeached twice. Unbelievable. Now, I think he should be impeached. He invited insurrection against the government he is supposed to defend. He needs to face some sort of consequence for what he did. And then finally, it's just so dangerous if he's ever allowed to be president again. 
And one of the main reasons that Democrats want conviction is to make sure that Trump is disqualified from serving as president. Every time we've said, oh, that's disqualifying, we could actually disqualify him. But aside from my opinion on impeachment, it's more important just to take in the historic nature of what happened. I'm going to leave with two final things. Number one, I think Trump should get some credit for the statement he put out today talking about unity and condemning violence. The violence, by the way, that he caused, of course, the division that he helped to sow. It's a bit disingenuous, but hey, at least he tried to cover up his tracks a little bit. At least he was fairly presidential, as opposed to saying, great job guys, attack them again, you know? Because that seriously could have happened as well. And my final thought is we all need to have burned into our heads the image of tyranny. And by that, I mean the image of the Trump 2020 flag and the Confederate flag going up in place of the American flag. People carrying those Trump banners into the Capitol while they were storming it. I don't know about you, but for me, that's a really freaky image. So, I had to cover a lot today, obviously. This is a long episode, but I hope you enjoyed it. Obviously, this is an end of an era. My last episode before Bye Bye Trump. Next season, with a bit more stability, considering that Biden's going to be president, I will do more planned out episodes, talking about bigger themes, rather than just reacting to what happened the day before. So, please come back next week for season 6 of Election Day, and thank you for listening.